You are listening to the new Fiction Talks podcast by the Center for Fiction. I'm Noreen Tomasi, Executive Director of the Center. Fiction Talks features new, exclusive interviews with award-winning novelists, as well as remastered recordings of literary giants who have appeared here at our space in New York City. I'm here today with Jonathan Santlofer, author of The Widower's Notebook. He was recently the editor of an anthology called It Occurs to Me That I Am America, which included stories by some of America's major writers about living in America in the aftermath of the 2016 election. It was Jonathan's idea to have all of the royalties from this book go to the American Civil Liberties Union. I tell you this because it gives you some idea of Jonathan's work as a literary citizen here in America, in addition to being an incredibly talented visual artist and writer of crime fiction. Today, Jonathan is here with me to talk about The Widower's Notebook, his memoir about the death of his wife, Joy, and the aftermath of that sudden event in his life. Jonathan, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the impetus for the book. I know this was a terribly difficult time for you, and I wondered about how you made the decision to begin to write. Yeah, thank you, Noreen. I didn't really make a decision to write this book. What, what happened was really uh, my wife, Joy, died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And for well over a year, almost two years, I couldn't write or do almost anything. Couldn't read. But I was keeping notebooks. And they were sort of a way to keep myself sane. You know, like, let's say I would see you, and then I'd go home, and I literally would transcribe what happened, because I felt a little bit out of my mind. So it was a kind of grounding thing. And um, I kept those notebooks, really just kept kept them kept going and writing things and then they they also started to become somewhat philosophical and about grief as I was experiencing it uh, I have to say that I no offense to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross but you know somebody gave me that book and I never saw any stages to grief at all it was a roller coaster it was like jumping out of a plane you know with out a parachute um, you were up and down in any case, I had these notebooks. I went to Yaddo, the arts colony, with the idea of finishing a novel, and a, a crime, a historical crime novel I had started before my wife's death. And I got there and I couldn't work on it. And what I ended up doing for well over a month was transcribing my notebooks. And that's really how it started. So, you know, up until the time almost that I sold the book, I never thought I was going to publish the book. It was sort of, I, I even discuss it in the memoir, the fact that, you know, is it right for me to even be doing this? I'll tell you that I had a couple of turning points. One was that I realized as much as the book, I think in many ways, is a tribute to my wife, Joy, it, it's really a book that was about what I was experiencing. And um, the books that when I finally could read, I started reading, were all memoirs, grief mem memoirs, you know, the famous Joan Didion book, Joyce Carol Oates book, many, many others. I read lots of them. And that is where I found something that, you know, was sort of helpful to me. So many of those books, though, are by women. 
almost all of them, almost all of them. Interestingly, I, I sought out some books by men, and there were books by men that I read and I liked, but they were so different. There's Francesco Goldman's book, Say Her Name, which I think is a beautiful book, but it reads like a novel. I mean, it is about his wife's death, but it is not, it doesn't do what, I, what the women's books do. I didn't read C.S. Lewis's famous book until after I finished my book. Somehow I totally missed it. And there are many things in his book that I related to, although his book is so tied up with religion that it's a little hard to separate them. I will say that I had a few readers at the beginning. There was a, the president of Yaddo read some of it, who's a woman, and said, you really have to keep writing this. And then you see on my book, one of the lead blurb is from Joyce Carol Oates, who is a friend, and she she actually read an entire, like, kind of messy draft, and she said, you absolutely have to do this because men do not write these kinds of books. You know, that was very encouraging for me. I mean, or uh, encouraging is the wrong word. It was, some, it was an impetus for me <clears throat> maybe to fill that, if, the, if, in, if that's a real way to say it, but to fill that gap. What interests me as well is so many of the books that you read about grief, H's for Hawk, occurs to me, mm -hmm. Helen McDonald's book, or the C.S. Lewis even, are about people's need to turn to something else as a means of moving away from grief. And what I found so striking about your book is its existence as a notebook and the fact that your writing and your drawing especially were ways of entering the process of grieving rather than moving away from it. At least it seemed that way to me as a reader. And I found that really distinctive that you would, especially the drawings in the book, which are so beautiful and evocative, and I can't imagine how difficult they were at the time to draw. You're actually the first person to say this, and it's something that I felt. I didn't really want to be excused from the grief. I didn't. I mean, I, I didn't want to wallow in it, but I didn't feel like I wanted to run away from it either. When I was thinking cogently or consciously, you know, this is something that's happening and you, you don't want to run away from it. You know, it, let me just say something about the books that you talk about. So H is for Hawk, which is tons of fun. I mean, it's odd for me to, to say that, or but that book is fun to read, you know. But the thing that struck me about it is how many of us are going to go out and train a hawk? You know, I mean, no, I wasn't going to do that, obviously. Drawing for me was a place. So I was trained in, you know, as an artist, a visual artist. I went to art school. I draw every day. It's something that is usually very relaxing for me. But what happened is because I think my wife's death was so sudden, I know a lot of people put photo, you know, they have a million photographs around. I hid the photographs. I took them all down because it, you know, what it would do is anytime I came upon a photograph, it was somewhat traumatic for me. So I put them away, but then there was something in me that missed those images. And I realized at a certain point, or I didn't realize it just sort of happened, I started making drawings, you know. It's almost like anything that you do, but where you have to concentrate the first drawing I made was of my wife, Joy, you know, and I had gone into her office. It was the middle of the night. I never slept. I mean, I think that's pretty common, <clears throat> particularly with sudden grief. You know, you just can't sleep. And so I would wander around my loft like a lunatic. And uh, one night I went into her office. It was the first time I went into her 
office. Joy was a food historian and working on a big book. And, and I went in there in the middle of the night, and boy, that was very disconcerting and awful. But on her desk was a printout of her author photo. And it was a very grainy sort of terrible Xerox. I knew the picture. And then I thought, let me find the picture. And then I couldn't find it. And the next thing I knew, literally, I was back at my drawing table in my studio. It was like three in the morning. And what I was doing was translating that picture into a drawing. It wasn't painful for me because it's something I'm trained to do. And also you have to concentrate. And I've always, not always, but I've often taught drawing. And you cannot learn to draw until you disassociate it from what you're drawing. In other words, if you say, I'm drawing a cup, you can't really draw it because you get caught up in the idea of what that cup is. So it's just a bunch of marks. And that's sort of what helped me make these drawings. You know, I would look at the, these um, either terrible photographs or Xeroxes, and I would translate them mark by mark into these drawings. It wasn't an escape because I was really inside the moment, you know, doing this. The active part of my brain was trying to replicate these marks, you know, the little pencil marks. When you're writing, one of the great things about writing is that it fills your mind. Totally. You know, the minute you are not connected, thinking about it, seeing it, trying to put it down on paper as in words, you know, you've lost it. You're disconnected. It's all encompassing. When you're making a drawing, when you're making visual art, a part of your brain is free to wander. You'd think in a way that that would make it harder if you're grieving to do these things. But I think, you know, I, I talk to other people about it and I say, choose something you're familiar with whether it's gardening or cooking, and get better at it, you know, and use it, you know, as a tool to get better. I mean, it's like H's for Hawk. Did my drawing get better? It changed. It, it got different in some ways. And making those drawings, of course, did have an emotional component. But usually it would, it would just come and go, you know, and often it wasn't until it was at the beginning and then it was sort of at the end. In the middle, I was concentrating so hard on the creation of it in mark making you know but did I have my critical head on later as the drawings got finished you know and I discarded tons of drawings or sometimes I stopped them they were sketches and that was enough that was enough for me and so I, I probably did a hundred over that period of time some became super finished some are less so we only chose, I think, 12 or 13 for the book, and I, I basically let my publisher choose them. We had a moment in the publishing thing where uh, the, they, weren't, they might have wanted to use photographs, and I was like, no, you can't. You know, First of all, photographs, this is one of the ways I survived. This is one of the ways I grieved. And the other thing is that a drawing and a photograph are totally different. They're totally different, you know. I mean, I love photographs, but they're not the same thing. I agree. And one of the other things that you do with a kind of, to me, astonishing precision is capture the sense of a long marriage with a kind of honesty that might have been difficult or I've never read anything quite like it. And, and after I read your book... I then went back and read other books like Joyce Carol Oates's and Joan Didion's to look at them. And those are wonderful books. Yeah. 
But in your book, there's such a raw honesty about the complexity of a long marriage. And you don't give yourself a break very often about it. And I just wonder about that process and how that felt to you. Part of grieving, obviously, is remembering. But also, you're not romanticizing in this book. Uh, At least the reader doesn't feel that you're in any way romanticizing what that relationship was. Obviously, the connection is there. The love is present. You feel that when you're reading the book. The pieces about uh, you and Joya's parents are so incredibly moving. But you're arguing, you disagree. She has her quirks. You have your quirks. (laughs) It's a marriage. And I found that very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's so fascinating to me to hear other people's reactions because this is something I've heard a lot, you know, from the people who've read the advanced uh, reader copy of the book. And people have been very struck with the the long-term marriage. But, you know, when I wrote it, I don't even think I thought about it. I really don't. You know, I think, as you notice, the book goes back and forth in time. And so things come to me at different moments, and that becomes part of the narrative. But... And I think I do say more than once, you know, I didn't, we didn't have a perfect marriage, but I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, but we were together forever. You know, we, we met in college and God, I mean, you know, it was most of my life, more, more of my adult life was spent with joy um, and as a couple than either before or after. Maybe a big part of me wanted to preserve that on paper. Of course, there are things I don't talk about in the book because they're I either I decided to not put them in or they ended up they were things I'd written in my notebooks that didn't feel like they were necessary to the book there was a point when of course I had to edit this book and I I remember thinking so specifically how can I be thinking about sentence structure words in a book like this which is so personal and and then I realized you know, if you're going to write a book like this, it had better be the best book you've ever written. You have to edit it. You have to, you know, there's the the balance between the personal and art. You know, what the, you make something into art. I also think that when you say not let myself off the hook, you know, I know I didn't in some uh, narratives that are in the book, and I've gotten a, quite already quite a bit of reaction to some of that. Here's to me the good news that people say the book is incredibly moving, but also at times incredibly funny. And that makes me happy to know. I, you know, here's the weird thing, Noreen. I didn't even know when I was writing the things that were funny until later when people said to me, oh my God, that scene with the, I almost fell on the floor. Or, you know, I got lots of emails from people in the, in the literary world who read the book and would say, you know, just when I was tearing up, I f- fell down laughing. And I guess I just kind of, maybe that's my normal personality, you know, so. That was definitely my experience as a reader, too. Um, those moments that are so funny and you think, suddenly you feel a little like, oh, wait, I'm laughing out loud at this memoir <laughs> about grief, but it works beautifully. One of the, th- the other things that I think makes it so distinctive is that you're dealing with your 
grief in this book at the same time that you have a daughter who's a young woman who has just lost her mother suddenly. Yeah. And so your responsibility and your fears and your deepest emotions have not only to do with your own feelings about having lost your wife, but your role, your duty, your priorities as Doria's father. And that's, I want to say something about that that struck me, that there's a great tenderness when you write about her, but there's also a great respect for her privacy and not mediating what her experience of grief is in the book. You don't ever do that. You don't try to explain what she might have felt. Something else is going on there that's far more interesting. I'm actually, not only am I thrilled that you say that, I want to make sure my daughter listens to this podcast because I was extremely aware of not telling her story. I mean, she is a big, big part of this book, big. And there was a certain point where I sat her down for half a day and I read her everything place that she appeared in the book. And I said, is this okay? Is this okay? You're all right with this. And she was fine with it. She's much more distressed by having to read about her mother's death again. Those are the things that really upset her. And, you know, I I think I say in the book, it took me a long time to understand that our losses were totally different. I lost a wife. She lost her mother. And they're really different things. I mean, part of this book is also, I think, the, how do I phrase it? It, it, It's sort of the struggle and the, I hate the word, but the journey that, you know, my daughter and I took together. We had new roles. This threesome went to a duo and in a very instantaneous, tragic way. And I've always been very close to my daughter. Basically, my wife was the normal one who went to an office to work, and I was home. And those early years, I was very much a painter. And my daughter, as a toddler, infant, was in my studio, you know, in her playpen. So we were physically very close to each other. And when she would cry, you know, I'd pick her up, and we'd literally, I was always listening to music, and we'd dance around the room until she got tired and fell asleep. And I think, you know, we were always very, a very close father and daughter, but this changed everything. It really, it really did. I feel like, and I think I talk about this quite a bit, I didn't allow her to express her feelings about it to me. And partially, I, I just couldn't deal with her hurt and her pain. I, I, it was too much for me. You know, I was dealing with, and, and selfishly, I think, you know, I was dealing with my own loss and pain, and I wanted to take care of my daughter, but I kind of couldn't let that in because any time that would happen, it would just flatten me. You know, it would totally flatten me. So we had to get to that point, you know. There's a very poignant piece in the book where you describe Doria calling you to ask you a question or to tell you something, and your realization is that she's really calling joy, that... You're a stand-in, and as that happens, you're thinking, how can I respond as myself, but also what would Joy have said, (laughs) which is exceedingly difficult moment for anyone to read in the book. must have been a difficult moment as a parent. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think that self-consciousness has gone away for me. And what I mean by that is the idea that I had to be both father and mother. And I don't think either Dory wanted me to be or that I should be, but it was there, you know, it was part of the thing. And I was very aware when Dory would ask me things that I knew she would never ask me before, you know, and I would think, am I saying, yeah, like, just like you said, am I saying the right thing? Um, and we still have that. It's become part of me. If you had been talking to me two years ago, it would have been a very different thing because I was still sort of a mess. Anyway, I think Dory and I are in a different, you know, we're in a different place. And we've had, um, we've had some good talks. Uh, publishing this book is not her favorite thing in the world, you know. But I'm glad that you say, and I've said this to her, this is not your story. That trajectory, though, in the process of grief reminds me that I saw on social media, I think, an exchange, I think it was with you, between you and Joyce Carol Oates recently, in which she said, I can't remember the exact quote, but she's quoting something about how you think when you're in the midst of grief that there are all these things you will never care about again, and then slowly they re-enter your life. And you responded immediately on social media to Joyce saying, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Here's the thing. I met, went through many different stages of thoughts about that. You know, when something like this happens and you lose the person who's closest to you suddenly, what you feel or what I felt, I can take it all now. You know, the worst possible thing has happened, at least I hope so. And, and nothing else matters. And everything else is small and inane and who cares. And then I had a turnaround in which I cared about everything. Everything bothered me. I went from thinking I didn't care to excessive sensitivity and caring. But now I think it's true. You know, you, it goes back to the thing a moment ago. We were talking about being funny or not or... You know, just because you have a tragedy, it does change something in you, but it doesn't change your personality. You know, you're still that person. I, I feel like I'm that person in an altered version of myself. You know, I will always have, you know, something in my brain chemistry and in my emotional life changed. I mean, I also became much more open through this and through the book. You know, Noreen, when I lost, you know, a decade of paintings in a fire, I would say to people, after a couple of years, I don't recommend a fire, but it changed me in a kind of terrific way. I certainly don't recommend losing a loved one, though I'm afraid most of us will at some point, or all of us will. I'm not saying it made me a better person. I'm still the same person. I wish it had made me a better person. It hasn't made me a better person, but it has changed something about me that I think is intrinsic and important, which is I'm aware of something. I don't think I was great with many people I knew who went through loss. I don't think I understood it at all. And I don't think I was a particularly good friend. Well, that's an interesting part of the book because it, there's a very honest depiction of oh, yeah. your friends, and I say this sadly as one of your friends, flailing around <laughs> trying to help you. Some people were amazing. There's a dinner party that was kind of unfortunate, I think, in the book, or... There, so people had very different responses to this, and you show 
some of that in the book in all its awkwardness, which I think is terribly important, no? Yeah, I do. You know, it's, it's, I'll tell you what's interesting. Like you, you just said about yourself flailing around. You, among many other people who were really wonderful, you know, this a friend of mine, Dan Conaway, who read the book and then wrote me this long, long, long email that was so beautiful about how he laughed and he cried. And at the very end, he said, I hope I wasn't one of the bad friends. And I said, Dan, do you forget that you on your way to work every other day stopped in my loft and brought coffee and, you know, like donuts and and he forgot this. He did this forever. I mean, I think just being available, that's all it is. But I'm not sure I was that great in my life, you know. And, and um, you know, if I were to write the book now, I would probably say I forgive everyone. Because I do. And I want to forgive everyone. There are friends that I won't be friends with again, I'm afraid. And it's a little hard to you know, sort of take back the people who completely vanished from your life, who were, had been really close friends. And I understand that this is a tough thing. Nobody knows what to say. And yet, so many of my friends were wonderful in a million ways, you know? So and I think I talk about my downstairs neighbor, my friend Ben, you know, my Saint Ben, right? That's incredible. Uh, she's 30 years younger than I am. And we were not great friends. We were sort of friends. And he's a night owl, and he would hear me upstairs pacing. He'd text me, what are you doing? You know, And he'd come up with a bottle of scotch. And we didn't talk about anything, but we would just chat. And, and, and uh, it's interesting because he's bumped himself to the front of the line for my friends. You know, he's one of my best friends. I love him. I just love him. But it is, I realize now in retrospect, this is a very tough thing for all of us. You know, and how people react. As I said, I would like to forgive everybody. You know, people did their, be their best. And for some, their best was, you know, came up really short. That's all. I mean, you know, I mean, when you don't do anything, that's probably not so great. I want to turn now for a minute to the structure of the book. I think I should say for those listening that, Yes, this is a memoir about the process of losing someone, and it is about grief, but it's kind of a page-turner. And there's a mystery at the heart of it, and I won't tell you much about what that mystery is, but the way it's structured, the way the chapters have momentum from one chapter to the next, and the way that mystery is suggested even very early on is so interesting to me. And I feel, I may be wrong, but I feel very much informed by your work as a crime fiction writer. <clears throat> I can't deny it. I would say this. At the beginning of writing this, I, none of those things were in my mind. It's interesting that you bring this up I was at a uh, writer's festival recently, and a woman in the audience asked me a question. It wasn't even, I was talking about other things with other writers, and she said, I've just read an advanced copy of your memoir, and I just want to say or ask you, this book is such a page-turner, I stayed up a whole night reading it. She said, did you think about writing it like a thriller? And I said, no, I didn't, but it's in my DNA. You know, I've published six crime novels, I'm working on another one, as you know, Noreen, I teach it, and let's forget just crime fiction. Every book needs an engine. You know, something has to drive that book, and I think that that is part of the way I think as a writer. And 
as I said, at a, at a certain point in this book, I really stepped back and thought about how I was going to structure it. And I broke it into three parts. And did I actually look at each chapter and say, what's driving this? I'm not sure. But I think I unconsciously very much did that. You're not the first person who's pointed it out. I mean, I have several literary writers who've said to me, one of them said to me, how do you do that? And I wanted to say to this literary writer, write a crime novel and you'll figure it out. You know, it'll become part of the way you write. The crime writing community won't put up, you know, readers, they won't put up with a book that doesn't have a driving force behind it. And so I guess, you know, that is in this book very much. I, I, um, I, it's, it's weird. I feel somewhat embarrassed to say that I did that. But I wanted the book to be great. I wanted it to be great. And that's an important part of it. Yes, there is an embedded mystery in this story. I don't think that's what drives the book, though. I guess I w would have to say that the narrative and the way the story's told, you know, that was something I had to really look at. I had all these pages. I, I had six filled composition notebooks. So obviously they're not all in the book. But when I started putting it together, I had to think of ways to do that. You know, the first draft of this was not chronological. And two people who were reading it said, you know, it, it has all the dislocation of grief, but it's really hard to follow. And so then I put it chronologically. And the minute I did that, the book started to take on a driving force of its own. You know, I've been reading um, Philip Roth again, oh, like everyone too. in America, probably. I'm reading The Counter Life, which is a great, great. Oh my book. God. Such, Such a, a good yeah. book. But I finish a section, and then, and he's a brilliant writer, but I finish a section, and then I contemplate, I walk away, I have dinner. And it's not that I didn't want to go have dinner when I was reading your <laughs> book, Jonathan, but I would, the way that you move from chapter to chapter, there's something about the momentum of it so that we're not only feeling that we're hearing the story of someone grieving, we feel like we're on this kind of journey with, let me call it the protagonist, mm -hmm. and that something is being revealed. And at the end of each chapter, there's a hint of what's next, just a hint of what's next always, which I found striking. And I don't know if that was purposeful, but it really resonated with me because you're dealing with such difficult subject matter. And yet the book just calls out to the reader. It just says, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. Huh. Um, what, what will happen now? What will happen now? And you know, what happens is it's someone grieving. So it's not, he gets on a train and he goes to this place or there's a gun in the first act and it goes off in the third act. None, none of those kind of plot points happen right, in this. Right. But yet that momentum is there. Well, you know, again, I would say that, look, I really believe no matter what you're writing, you have a job. You know, your job is to keep the reader riveted to the page. And I know at a certain point, I had to make all of those choices and decisions as a writer. And I wanted the book to be as gripping as possible. I, I mean, I had to create the driving narrative of the book. And I will admit that, yes, I stepped back and I did that. I rewrote this book many, 
times, you know. And uh, um, I couldn't have done it in the first couple of years. I mean, it's five years now since my wife died. This summer will be five years. And I started transcribing the notebooks at two years. It basically took me two years to figure out how I would tell the story. No names, but I've recently, you know, I've read a zillion grief memoirs. And recently, this was not a grief memoir, but I was reading a memoir by an incredibly beautiful writer and well-known writer. And I put it down in the middle. It had absolutely no driving force. And I thought, I wonder what, why this writer thinks you can do that. You know, why you can get away with that. You know, honestly, I didn't want people to be able to put my book down. I didn't, you know, this is an important book to me. I wanted them to be really involved with Joy's story, with my story, with my daughter Doria's story. This is, you know, this is the story of our lives. This is it. This is the big thing. You know, it's the thing our culture never wants to talk about someone dying. I remember having a really bizarre moment when I was restructuring the book. I don't remember which time, but I thought to myself, well, everybody knows how this book ends because, you know, here I am a crime writer and crime, you know, you're figuring out a crime, but this book was set in motion by my wife's death. So everybody knows that going into it. So in fact, there are mysteries, but that is not what drives a book like this. What drives a book like this is the way you tell it, the emotional resonance, I guess. God, there's so many things of that. But, you know, breaking it up into chapters and understanding those chapters and looking at them. And I did what I would do. This sounds so crazy, but I did what I would do with almost any novel. You know, I had those chapters on index cards and I moved them around to see because... For me, what I wanted was to have the most possible resonance that would hit people and make them understand something, see something, whether it was absurd, tragic, funny, whatever it was. And you know you know this. When you juxtapose one chapter differently from another, suddenly it comes alive. And that was good. It, it's sort of like making the drawings, as we talked about. You know, like you're now making this other thing. You're taking this story. When I think about it, it sounds so narcissistic, you know, but this is what happens when you take something. I feel lucky. I didn't finish that sentence. But when you're an artist, when you're a writer, you know, you're taking the pieces of your life, good and bad, and you're restructuring them. You're making them into something else. And that is filled with decisions. It's filled with editorial decisions. I want to move that color over here. I want to move that sentence over here. And why are you doing it? You're doing it instinctually, but you're doing it to make that thing have the most effect in that moment, right? And I think, you know, I have, at this point, more experience doing it. I've written books. I remember, and I know you, you knew this per person, Marsha Tucker, who was a great Whitney curator. She founded the New Museum in Manhattan. And I remember her being in my studio. She was sort of a mentor to me as a visual artist. And I was quite young, but uh, I had a several years under my belt as an artist. And I said, you know, Marsha, there's something about these new paintings of mine I'm not sure I trust because I did them very quickly. And she said, you did them quickly because you know how to do it now. That's all. You can trust them. You know, you've been doing this for 10 years. You know how to do it again. There are those moments when we, you know, it all falls apart. You have to rethink it. But by the way, I'll just say crime writing is the greatest background for any writer because you must satisfy your reader.
you know, you know that, right? The book is now landing. The pub date is, tell us the pub the date pub again. The pub date's July 10th. July 10th. And the book is beautifully produced. It feels like a notebook, and it includes the drawings. Um, as part of the publication of the book, I know you've just come back from a tour um, have, for yeah. the anthology, <laughs> but you'll be talking about the book a great deal. Yes. Five years now later. And I'm wondering how you're feeling about that. Are you looking forward to it? Is it another step? Obviously, I know you want the book to be successful. We all want our books to be successful. I have no doubt this book will be successful. It's so beautifully written, so moving. But but how are you feeling about that pub date looming? Well, it's a combination of, you know, excitement and total trepidation. Interesting that you say that. So, you know, I had... Uh, I will say, in advertisements for myself. You know, I had a great Publishers Weekly review and a great Kirkus review. And I said to my daughter, um, you know, I'm feeling so weirdly conflicted getting these really great reviews for this book. And she said, why, you'd rather have bad reviews? And of course, no, I wouldn't. And how do I feel about talking about it? Well, you know, I was very uh, nervous about talking about it. And then I went to a library to talk about an old book recently and the people all asked me, well, what, what's next? And so I ended up spending half of that night talking about this new book. And I found that I could talk about it comfortably. Because I've gone through the process of writing the book, I have enough distance so that I don't, I don't think I'm going to fall down crying when I read things and when I talk about the book. I've also chosen things that I can read, small things that I can read at events that, let's say, are about the drawing process or about keeping a notebook that aren't that emotional for me. But also, I think this is a topic that, as I said, is really close to many people's heart and all of us in some way. And so I think I can talk about it. A part of me would almost like to uh, talk about it a lot, you know, with a, and go to a lot of places. I'm doing some events. I'm not doing as many as I might have in the past, but we'll see. I mean, I don't think I'll say no to, to anyone who wants me to come and read because or talk. Um, I think it's, as I said, it's a really important topic. And the fact that I am at a point when I can talk about it, I find that remarkable. Thanks for talking about it with me. Um, to our listeners, I want to urge you to rush out and buy this book. Tell us the pub date again. July 10th. So get to the bookstore and buy this book. I found it not only moving, funny, a page turner, sad, evocative, but also life-changing for me in the ways that I thought about grief. So thanks so much, Jonathan, oh, that's so for this. so beautiful. Thank you very much, Noreen. <laughs>